isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. On the show today, Emmanuel Duma. The Nigerian author discusses his new book, I Am Still With You, which explores the legacy of Nigeria's civil war over different generations. With the country heading to the polls this week, we'll be hearing of a pivotal looming election too. Our host for this discussion is Dippo Faloyan, author of Africa is Not a Country and senior editor for Vice. Let's join Dippo now for more. Emmanuel Duma is an author and critic whose last book in 2018, Stranger's Pose, won acclaim for its reframing of traditional writing forms. Stranger's Pose was part travelogue, part photo essay, part memoir, and part poetry collection, reflecting on his travels around Africa. He returns this year with a very different book, I Am Still With You. The new book is an exploration of Duma's family's story framed amid the context of the Nigerian Civil War. The conflict between the Nigerian government and the Breakaway Republic of Biafra began in 1967 and lasted nearly three years. In I Am Still With You, Iduma asks questions about his father and uncle's generation, many of whom were lost to battle, and the generations since who have had to live with difficult questions hanging over their family stories about missing relatives, Iduma's uncle being one. He quotes his father's refrain in the book, What if one day he returned from nowhere? I'm joined now by Emmanuel Iduma to discuss I Am Still With You. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. Thank you so much, Tiko. It's such a pleasure to be here. It's such a pleasure getting to talk to you. Uh, I absolutely loved your book. It is so poetic and so personal, and it feels so true to this feeling that many Nigerians have in terms of trying to discover not only our own kind of personal histories, but also, you know, the history of the country. It's sort of part memoir, as well as sort of an exploration into the core of Nigeria itself. What essentially is the book to you? Thank you. That's a very good question. Um, I, I think that the book at this point of reflecting on it, um, which is uh, the point in which it's published and not simply when I was conceiving it or writing it. The book is um, really a story of um, accounting for for loss. Um, it's also a reckoning with uh, uh, Nigerian history with um, just the idea that history is not a given. It's not necessarily the story of simply what happened in the past that one is handed um uh, is handed to one but it's also an engagement with what story has been handed to you um and so for me this is a book in which i try to account for gaps and silences in the history that i have been given but i hope that it does more than that that the you know it's not simply a memoir of my life or my family's past but also um an accounting um, for the story of my country. 
Yeah, certainly. And I think it definitely speaks to a wider story, as well as kind of the birth of identities as a whole. And we'll sort of get onto that. But first, I kind of want to get a sense of your own personal motivations. Um, mm -hmm. You were, at the time, you know, when you started this journey, you were living in New York, I believe, um, before you moved uh, back to Nigeria. Um, you know, speak to us a bit about that motivation and, and you know, your uh, why it was important for you to, to, to make that step um, to, to, you know, whether it's moving back to Lagos or Nigeria or just spending more time back in Nigeria. Yeah, um, I, it was for Tifos because I, I sort of made the resolution, in a sense, to start writing the book, you know, uh, a month before my father passed, right? I, I was, I had sort of gone through this like process of um, trying to write fiction about the aftermath of the war and didn't quite work. Um, or it started working when I realized that the story I was trying to tell was that of my uncle. Um, and just around the time I come to this realization, my dad passes on, um, and everything just sort of, you know, the, the, in a sense, the ground is pulled from my feet, so to speak, um, especially in terms of my, my relationship to my family. I, I, I feel suddenly, um, and acutely that I am far away. So I sort of make the decision right around that time to return to Nigeria and just sort of be based there, right? And, and figure out what it means to live close to my family. I was engaged at the time, what it means to be close to the person that I wanted to spend my life with. And all of those, all of those, you know, um, decisions happened. Um, and then I go to Nigeria, um, right before the pandemic and I spent like the first six months, six weeks rather. Um, before, you know, Nigeria shut down, traveling within, um, the southeastern part of Nigeria in order to write this book. Um, so it's very much a story, um, of return and of, um, in a sense, outpacing the distance that I felt both, um, in a, in a material sense to my family and to, and to Nigeria. You, you mentioned just then that it's a story of return and it was happening you know, th there was a, a bit of uh, crossover between, you know, Ghana's efforts at the time of when they introduced the year of return and trying to get people from, you know, around the diaspora to 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 make for them, you know, Ghana um, that point of contact. But, you know, similar conversations were happening around the continent with people from across the diaspora thinking about, you know, rebuilding some of those connections back, uh, back home as well as kind of trying to better understand some of the st family stories that they that they were told and I know that you know you had spent a lot of your your uh, younger years in Nigeria so you know it, it's, it's not the same as someone who really had no sense of their their links but is, is that something that was also on your mind just you know that that part of being that part of that wider story of people across the, the diaspora trying to trying to reconnect in a way that, that was meaningful for you the question of return um, I think was very important to me um, in the sense that I was a Nigerian who had moved um, to New York, um, you know, for, for grad school. And, um, and, and of course, having lived all my life in New York, um, in Nigeria, I mean to say, um, going to New York was a bit of a, um, to use a trite phrase, a culture shock, right? Um, I, I, I first of all had to deal with like the conversion of money, right? So what, what is money worth at this point, <laughs> you know, from Naira to dollars? But more importantly, um, the sense of coming into myself, um, 
while I was in New York, uh, thinking about what it meant to be a writer, starting to be a writer, starting to think through um, images and, um, and, and culture, um, and then returning to Nigeria with that education, right? Um, in my first year or two, um, and especially because this was happening during the pandemic, I had to reckon with how much had changed in my outlook. And I think that that's in some way a universal experience for anyone who sort of is trying to bridge, um, you know, senses, what I'll think of as senses of identity, right? So the identity between, say, if you are African-American, who knows that their, their, their people was taken from this place um, and then returning to um, a place where you, f- you, you feel not necessarily an ancestral connection, not necessarily a cultural one. Um, I think that there is some kind of um, connection between those, those two senses of return, right? Um, I don't think it's, I don't think it's immediate. I think it's theoretical, right? I think that um, I'm not hoping that this is a story of return that appeals in a, in a very broad sense to every single person who tries to return. But I'm hoping that it's a story of return that means something to anyone who who is trying to investigate the past um, in whatever way. I mean, the past, you know, as the epigraph of the book says, the past does not change, nor need for it. What must change is the way of telling. So everyone has a past that they can return to, so to speak. And I'm hoping that this book can serve, or I, I thought of the book as serving as a primer for for that for for those explorations of the past central to your investigation is the search for the truth about your uncle um tell us about your uncle and the sort of the context um in which your your you started this journey um yeah um so I, I met only one of my uncles, um, you know, my dad had, was the fourth son of five sons. Um, and uh, before I was born, um, three of my uncles had died. Um, and um, I, I just met the last son, you know, and of course my dad. And, you know, because my dad was the fourth son, he was far younger than his older brothers, you know, when the war started. Or he was younger than the first two at the very least. And so when the war started, everyone who was old enough to join um, the war, you know, either volunteered or was conscripted. Um, the circumstances in which my other uncles joined, or even, in fact, all my uncles joined is un- still unclear to me. Um, because as I write in the book, um, there was, there is no registry of records, so to speak, of everyone who fought in the Biafran War, right? Um, because this was a side that lost the war um, or eventually lost the war. And so my uncles, um, you know, all participated in the war. My dad, in a sense, was too young to, well, he could have joined the war, I guess, people at his age did fights in the war, but he just served as a domestic servant for one of the Biafran officials. Um, so that is the, that is really what I know about, you know, the circumstances in which my family participated in the war. Um, um, since my other uncles were not alive by the time I was born or by the time I was writing this book, um, it's very, it's also difficult to know, um, the extent of their participation. And so what I, 
I struggled to do was to then um, create some kind of patchwork of testimonies in relation to this uncle that is missed or that was, that didn't return after the war. Most likely he died, you know. I mean, if I think if he was alive, he would have come back, right? Um, and, um, and I think what was eventually most important to me was to recover a sense of who he was. What kind of young man was he? Um, so much of that can get lost when someone dies young, right? Um, it almost seems like they didn't have any identity beside their, besides the fact that they died young. But for me, when I was listening to my dad's friends, my dad's cousins um, speak about this man, what I was also trying to listen for was what kind of young man was he? What were his ambitions at the time? Um, what kind of soldier um, did he become um, during the war? How um, important was, was Biafra to him? Um, and those were some of the things that I did, I think, recover, right, um, and, and tell in the book. And more pertinent to you because, you know, this is an uncle who shared the same name as you. Yes, absolutely. I forgot to mention that part, right? Um, so I'm named Emmanuel. Um, and, um, and you know, Emmanuel is not the name he's, he's not his first name, I would say, right? It's sort of his second name, Um um, I don't know how how much of this is true in Yoruba culture, but in in Igbo culture or like in in Igbo urban culture, I would say, or educated um, culture, um, most people really, I mean, from the time that the British came and started um, evangelizing, would take on English names or names that um, biblical names, I would say, um, um, in order to to show that they had become Christian. Um, and so this idea of, um, quote, um, a baptismal name um, became quite popular. Um, so in my hometown, my father is primarily known as his middle name or what becomes his middle name when he's outside of, um, of the hometown. And so my uncles as well, as well. So when I'm speaking of being named after him, I'm really speaking of being named um been given a name that he he took on most likely as um or you know or he was given in school or whatever right took on as a second name in order to participate in a more educated world but of course that becomes more important to me um because i'm very clear that my father repeated this to me that i named you after my brother and not just that one of the names that was important to my dad in calling me was um, a name was the name one in naya which means the brother of his father um, and so it's not just being named Emmanuel, so to speak. It's also being named, um, um, being being named as some kind of placeholder. I don't want to say placeholder, but you know what I mean. Being named in the spirit of right. That's a better way to put it. Of um, my uncle. And so I I think of what the name does, not just in the sense of being called Emmanuel, right, but also what it means to inhabit this presence. Um, that is so to speak lost um and and what kind of tribute is my life to his um yeah that I, that's really fascinating so i know that lots of nigerians who will be listening to this will uh be able to um see their own personal story through that telling you know within my own family alone my sister is you know her name uh 
is kind of a representation of uh, our grandmother um, who had passed away shortly. And so it's kind of like grandma has returned is sort of mm-hmm, the way mm-hmm. in which it's, 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 it's described. And this sort of formation of identity is really central to your book. And the war we're talking about is the Nigerian civil war, mm-hmm, which is mm-hmm. foundational to you know, almost the identity of Nigeria itself. Yes. And, you know, so, so let's, let's just talk about sort of the, the context of, of what this story is set around, this, this civil war. Um, explain to uh, the audience here, how did the Nigerian civil war come about? Um, and, and what was it about uh, the inability for this young country, which was about seven years old at this point, um, to really come to terms with who it wanted to be and who was uh, able to define the future of this country? Yeah. Um, I'll try to be very (laughs) brief, right? Um, As you say, it's such a formative, um, it's it's really, I think, the most formative experience of modern Nigeria or um, post-independence Nigeria and all of its... um, uh, the ways in which it has formed Nigeria still, you know, echo um, in, in Nigerian politics and, and culture and social life, really, even today. So the war began in 1967 on July 6. But before then, there had been two coup d'etats, right? Nigeria um, initially adopted a parliamentary system of government styled after the British um, and then, you know, the soldiers, um, some soldiers alleged that Nigeria was, um, especially after some series of conflicts in the early 60s, Nigeria was sort of sliding into just kleptocracy and, 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 and manic corruption. And so um, um, some majors in the army decided to sort of... Um, they, de- they decided to carry out a revolution. Those were the attempts, right? A revolution um, in, in, in early, in early 66. And, and what they then did was to kill most of the prominent politicians um, and kill them, assassinate them, and take over the government. But that didn't quite succeed. So they succeeded in parts of Nigeria, like Kaduna, um, but didn't succeed in Lagos, which was the capital, or even in the southeast in Enugu. Um, I think they succeeded in the most of the not really. Um, and so very quickly, as, as soon as they failed, um, you know, it became clear that, or it became, it, it became framed as an ethnic, um, um, you know, uh, coup d'etat. So most of the, um, those who had led the coup, or well, a number of them were evil. And so this enraged um, the Aousa um, soldiers, or, you know, that's another ethnic group in Nigeria. Um, and they felt that they had to sort of deal with um, the evil elements within the Nigerian army. Um, and so uh, six months later, a second coup d'etat happened. Um, by the way, you know, the, the, the highest ranking military official, um, Agu Yironsi, who was also evil, right? <laughs> You know, unfortunately, actually, he had not he had nothing to do with the coup, but he was the highest ranking official. And once you know the coup d'état failed, it became he just really had to rally you know his mutinous um, troops, so to speak. Um, but then there was a second coup d'état, and this was clearly an attempt. This was not even a question of revolution at this point. This was clearly an attempt to deal with the evil officers who had 
um, ostensibly led the, the, the first coup. And so this second coup happens, um, but then it slides into some kind of ethnic, um, really ethnic cleansing, you call it that. I don't want to use, um, exaggerate too much, but really the people who were then dealt with, not just in the army, but outside the barracks were Igbo and anyone really from the south eastern part of Nigeria, because, you know, the Igbo is the largest uh, ethnic group, but, you know, there are several other um, ethnic groups in the southeast or south-southern part of Nigeria. And so you had really thousands of people being killed um, in what was called a pogrom in um, beginning in May of um, 1966 and then continuing even up to September of 1966. Um, so at this point, the eastern region became... Um, which is the home to the Igbo, you know, people and other people from the from that region. They felt that you know this was a a genocide, and so people started returning from the northern part of Nigeria to the east, and and um, and eventually um, because this um, pogrom, as they called it, uh, continued, they felt that the the eastern region had to succeed from Nigeria, and. That's in sum how this war begins. Um, the federal government, of course, is against um, succession. Um, and there's a little bit more history, but I don't want to go into all that detail for one of time. But um, it becomes a war um, against um, the federal government of Nigeria. And now this new region or this new country called Biafra um, that had proclaimed itself a republic um, in, on, on May 30th of, of 1967. Um, and, you know, the war continues, um, begins July 6 and continues until January 15 of 1970. Um, and we can chat about all kinds of things within that period, but, but that's, I hope that that gives a little background to, to the conflict. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. 
That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Yeah, and it's it's you know it's a it's a brutal conflict. Um, in the book, you you mention how you know at one point about ten thousand uh, people were died a day due yeah. to starvation alone, yeah. um, and it, it's such a and that was a really you know great summation of the the conflict because at the core it's 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 a it's a struggle for identity. Yeah, um, and so you have this wider country, Nigeria which is largely an invention of the British. Yeah. And you have, you know, three large ethnic groups, the Yorubas, Hausas, and Igbos, mm-hmm. who make up the, the biggest part of this country, but also you have hundreds of other ethnic groups as well. And this country is trying to decide, you know, what future does it hold? And more specifically, the Igbos at the start of the, the war say, you know, if we're only safe in the Southeast, then we have no business with the rest of the country. Yeah. Let's go off and let's start our own our own country and it fell to you know families across the southeast to try and establish this new nation of biafra and and that's the the work that your family did and mm-hmm. you know when you when you went back to the southeast to 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 research this book and to sort of understand your your family story how was that um how was kind of learning about the role that they played in in trying to define for themselves you know, a future uh, that that in which they could be safe and that they could, instead of being forced to be part of this this bigger thing that you know the British sort of forced them to be part of, what was that work of trying to establish this this new nation of Biafra, mm. like led by uh, uh, Ojuku and and other yes. and other commanders? Mm. I think that the best way to say that is that the work seems to have been, the work of constructing identity seems to have been carried forward. Um, many of the people that I spoke with within my family were, um, you know, just like shy of being teenagers when the war broke out. So there weren't people who, but, you know, I met some people who fought in the war, but there weren't people who in my family actively participated in um as fighters or soldiers in or infantrymen during the war. But the overarching sense I got from speaking to people, even up till now, of course, is that that work of constructing identity in the Southeast or what was once called Biafra has been carried forward um, in, in many ways. I mean, the most pointed of that um, carrying forward is the, 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 the current Biafran agitation um, um, the the insecurity in the southeast. I don't even think, for instance, that I can do the kind of travels that I did two years ago in the southeast now, right? Um, maybe out of fear or just the concern for, you know, safety in that sense, right? So what I felt, um, and this became the core of the work I was trying to do, was that this there were so many lingering questions that had been carried over people still felt that it didn't belong to Nigeria. Um, That even though they are Nigerian, they are first and foremost trapped 
um, you know, so to speak, within this contraption that they try to get out of, or their 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 parents or their the previous generation tried to get out of that they didn't succeed in getting out of, and they still feel that that you know, um, if it's where possible, they will get out of this country. Um, and and I couldn't, you know, in a sense, I hadn't really understood how how um, how potent, so to speak, that disillusionment remained uh, or how much of that disillusionment remained. And, and it was clear to me while I was traveling that I, I didn't even need to think about the history, so to speak. I just need to speak about, I needed to speak to people about the current level of disillusionment and, um, um, you know, disinclination to remain in Nigeria. Yeah. And I think it, it's so important kind of being able to connect that past with the present and what's going on today. And I think that not just for Nigerians, but anyone around the world who is trying to, as you sort of said earlier, fill in the gaps mm. in the stories that we're told growing up and trying to understand better how those stories impact us today. Um, you write about remembrance that, you know, to remember is to sort of circle time. Mm -hmm. And 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 that's kind of the work that you do so well in this book um, to to try and kind of go back and 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 fully capture everything that, that got not just your family to this point, but Nigeria to this point. Yeah. And it does provide a roadmap for others, I think, who are searching to do the same thing. And one thing that kind of makes this work so important and that will probably surprise a lot of people outside of Nigeria is that a lot of this isn't taught in schools. You know, mm -hmm. I, I went to I went to school in in Lagos mm -hmm, and we mm -hmm. never we never yeah. studied the civil war. And, you know, in at one point in the book you write, uh you meet uh, a, an elderly relative, uh, Mami Onicha, mm. um, who who asks you, you know, what started the war. Um, yeah, and it's it's you know it's such a it's such yeah. a shocking moment because it, this, this thing happened and people kind of you can we can kind of go back and forth with the reasons as to you know this is recent history the trauma of it the fact that so many actors many some of whom are still alive today. Yeah. Um, but, you know, from you and from your stories, you know, why do you think there has been this reluctance in Nigeria to, to really face up to this this history and this this moment um, in time? Yeah, I, I think that um, I think it's just too difficult for people. Um, well, starting from the evil people who fought, you know, the Biafran side. I don't want to keep saying the evils because that's that's not correct. Absolutely correct. Right. But um, the Biafran, in the Biafran region, the former Biafran region, for many people, it's just too difficult, right? It's not just difficult in the sense of um, the deaths or the scale of dying, um, but also the idea that they had to start life again. So if people, you know, ha you know have to start their lives again, um, they'll most likely want to I think, and that was the experience of speaking to people, feel like the past um, either does not exist or has to be um, stifled or muted in order to advance. Um, and then on a national scale, I think um, it's really the, <laughs> the arrogance of victory, um, you know, for most of the people who became the leaders of Nigeria, they felt that, well, you tried to leave Nigeria, you lost. So, you know, you don't have any say in deciding how this history is written or talked about. Um, it's 
it's it was too inconsequential, um, I feel, um, for many people who were in the leadership of Nigeria um, to, to, to center the importance of the war. Uh, and for them, it felt like, I, this is my understanding, that in order to, to move on, they had to make the war um, um, trivial. Now that's baffling to me from a later generation. I just don't understand how that can be the case. But I think that if we want to be kind, you know, in our consideration of the leaders of Nigeria, that's perhaps the the most um, generous way they felt in order to, you know, to deal with um, the task of national reconciliation. Um, but of course, it's it's um, I think it's foolhardy um, because ultimately we're now dealing with a later generation who have to engage with the bitterness of their parents, right? So when people in my generation are speaking to their family members and hear how angry they are about the Nigerian state, um, and we feel, why are you this angry, right? Uh, once we return to the history of the war, we understand their anger. And if that's not properly taught, we would simply carry over that anger without harnessing it or without, you know, um, um, passing it through, you know, some kind of reasoned uh, thinking and carry it forward. That's exactly what's happening in the Southeast now, where younger people, most of the people who are agitating for Biafra, we are not born. Um, they are my age. They are born, you know, they are in their 30s. They are not born, they weren't born um, they were born 20 years or 15 years after the war ended, right? And this is exactly because, you know, the war has been treated as something that is too trivial if the country is going to move forward. Um, and then finally, I think that, um, and this is a recent thought, I don't even think I articulated in the book, but Nigeria or the, the formation of Nigeria um, was, was so violent, Right. Um, uh, you know, sometimes we, we think that because, you know, we don't have the same kind of history as others, other African countries that had to go on for, go, you know, fight wars of independence, that Nigerian, um, the Nigerian state is not formed on like just unimaginable scale of violence. And, and you know, I think that we are, have been trained in our collective psyche to keep deferring the task of um of walking through um the trauma of the past and i'm not speaking just on a personal level i'm saying that the country has always attempted to defer um it's um it's it's reckoning with the violence that shaped it and i think that that has to change i mean absolutely has to change yeah yeah and i think that this this is part of a, a wider global story as well when it comes to having accurate reckonings of our past. Mm -hmm. we, we saw it in the last few years with the, the Black Lives Matter movement and efforts uh, to teach more accurate um, representations of sort of colonialism and, and, and in the way in which, you know, these things continue to linger into the present. And for so long, much of these histories are sort of pushed away. And mm -hmm. I think your, 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 your book kind of speaks to the importance of doing that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I think, you know, when, when you speak to other people who might be interested in, in this work, you know, how important do you think even beyond Nigeria it is mm -hmm. to ensure that we have these accurate uh, 
tellings of history and we don't just keep pushing this back further. Mm. I I think I mean I I think it's um it's important in the sense that um you know or the way I think about it our lives um only matter if our stories um sort of are tributaries in a sea of stories so to speak um if our personal lives are tributary in a sea of stories I think that what I'm hoping for or what I was trying to do with the book was to articulate a history that was not definitive um, you know, because that's not interesting. I mean, there are actually a lot of books that have been written about Biafra. So I wasn't um, interested in another account of the war, um, passing blames and all of that, which is really the mainstay of the writing around Biafra, who was to blame, who should have done something else or whatever. Um, I think what became interesting to me and hopefully what I hope and hopefully what I think can be proposed um with other other reckonings is what is my how does my life um interweave with um you know that of the nation how does the um political become invariably personal um right i i this is one way to i think move um into a place where we are not simply um you know putting aside the task of engaging with the past on the national level where there there is room um, for as many people who can and who are interested in finding points of um, um, correspondence between their lives and that of the nation. Um, you could say that this happens always. I mean, there are books that do this, but I I, I do think that that's the well, that's the genius of um, of personal narrative that it can um, hopefully um, connect the life of one person to to the life or the collective um, um, sense of belonging of, of a nation. Um, and I hope that more of this is possible, right? Um, and that writers, especially writers from Nigeria, writers from the African continent, can see this task as, um, you know, as reasonable and necessary. Yeah. And you, you start this book at a... Uh key moment in recent Nigerian history, which is the NSARS protests, um, where young people took to the streets across the country uh, to demonstrate against police brutality and general corruption around the country. Um, and we're talking in a week in which will end, in which Nigeria will elect a new president. And many of those young people are pushing for uh, Peter Obi, an, an Igbo candidate, um, to become president. What would be the sort of, from your research and your studying and that connection between what occurred then and what, what's happening now where people are trying to say, you know, let's set aside ethnic divisions, let's set aside, you know, who is the best candidate for my, uh, for my tribe and my, my group and my, and, you know, who, who is just like me in terms of identity. Let's, let's set that aside and, and try and come together as a nation to decide, you know, what's the best thing for the country. Mm. How do you think, you know, the work and your research um, can play a role in giving young people, regardless of how this election turns out, a sort of a roadmap to understanding what collectively, you know, it means to be Nigerian into the future and how across ethnic groups, people can work together to to fulfill, uh, you know, the destiny of, of this country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think you're right that um, the NSAS movement certainly 
um, is so pivotal in understanding what Nigeria can become and would be in the next 50 years. Um, there is a lot of, I mean, what I thought then and what I tried to weave into the book was that people who were born, you know, around, you know, the late 90s or, you know, mid 90s, younger than I am, um, were, had the first, first, a first hand experience or became politically radicalized, um, so to speak. Um, and the radicalization is not in the fundamentalist sense. Um, I mean that in the sense of, really understanding how politics plays a role in their daily lives. Um, it's easy to take for granted, um, I think, you know, especially um, in African countries where things, there's just histories of dysfunction and ineptitude and all of that. And sometimes I think that young people could seem apathetic about the future of their country. But something always changes, right? Like it did in Nigeria. For, for this generation um, where, and in fact, in previous generations, there was also 30 years, you know, there was the June 12th thing. And before that, you know, there were all those student-led um, movements and protests in Nigeria. So every generation has its moment of reckoning um, or political reckoning. And I think that moment came um, for a 90s generation in, or born a generation that was born in the 90s in October of 2020. Now, um, I'm, I'm sort of moving around because, um, you know, my, 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 my thoughts about, I'm, I'm so, you know, nervous, really, I mean, to be really honest about these elections and not in the sense that the nervousness comes from just how incredible it is that Peter Obi has managed to become as successful in this um, cycle, that it's actually a thought that he could win. That's unprecedented, uh, you know, in Nigerian politics. Um, and I'm now I'm nervous that what would happen if he doesn't win? Or what would happen if he wins? Um, for sure, even if he wins, or whether or not he wins, something has changed in the political character of Nigeria in the sense that people now feel that they can directly have a say in who becomes the president of Nigeria. Um, in a way that I don't think was possible. Certainly, nine, um, four years ago, you know, which had a very low voter turnout, or even in 2015 when people were pushing for Buhari and all of that. Um, so what I think really um, is that whether or not he wins, Peter Obi has scored a moral victory. Um, and that young people hopefully um, would, would feel, I and mean, certainly even people my age and, you know, everyone who is under 35 and, you know, um, who would feel that something is possible, a kind of um, participatory politics um, is, poli is poss possible in Nigeria that never was possible before. Um, because finally, Nigeria is certainly, um, I don't necessarily think that this is the most existential moment in Nigerian history, but I do think that we really need to get it right um, as soon as possible um, because of the population explosion that is bound to happen, that is already happening, um, how important Nigeria is for, you know, the whole of um, the continent. And especially, and finally, you know, to go to the point about, I forgot that point, the point about, you know, what my research showed me. Um, it's, it's really that um, 
you know, we need to understand what federalism is, right? If Nigeria is going to work, what is federalism? What does it mean to have, as, as you know, was formulated after the war, a federal character, right? If most people still think of themselves first as their ethnic, um, you know, um, identities before um, thinking of themselves as thinking of themselves as Nigerian, then it's important to try to articulate what does it mean for an evil person or people from the southeast or south south or northwest or whatever to feel that they belong to Nigeria. I think that for so long people have taken that for granted, right? That you you shouldn't articulate a an ethnic form of belonging to Nigeria. I think that it's possible to act articulate an ethnic form of belonging to Nigeria, but it has to be in a participatory manner. It has to, it's, it's, even though Peter Obi will probably say, oh yeah, it doesn't matter that I'm evil, I'm just, I'm representing all of Nigerians. But it's a, it's a signal, a shift in Nigerian politics if an evil president emerges. I think certainly, and, and as you just outlined really well, this is a, a seismic moment for the country whether he wins or not. And I think anyone who wants to understand how Nigeria has gotten to where it is today and the formation of these identities and, and the idea behind why so many people are asking, you know, what does it mean to be Nigerian yeah. today? Anyone who wants to kind of understand the history behind that certainly should should read this book. Oh, um, thank you. Thank and, you. you know, I, I'll, I'll sort of end by sort of asking you, what is the, the key takeaway for a reader in your mind? What do you want them to come away learning and understanding um, from, you know, this this brilliant telling of both your family's story, but also the story of Nigeria, as well as this universal um, desire to, to fill in the gaps of our own stories and give a proper assessment of our identities. What do you want readers to come away with? Yeah, um, I think that it is that a telling of the past is not, is never finished, um, um, that we are always reappraising our relationship to the past. When we think about the future, it's far out. When we think about the present, it's too um, in, the, in the moment and immediate and almost like always an emergency in the moment, right? But when we think about the past, the story is there, um, in a sense, waiting to be harnessed. Um, and this became the key thing that helped me move forward in the narrative you know when you are for instance dealing with the the death of a parent uh, or the death of anybody really where the story of that person as you know it has ended you know the story of their lives have ended so one is now simply reappraising um the meaning of their lives um or when you're dealing with a historical event like biafra one is appraising what it meant so for me, I hope that the key takeaway is that people feel um, that the past is always worthy of um, reappraisal um, and in a way that makes sense um, for, you know, the emergencies of the moment, um, you know, because ultimately what I try to do or articulate in the book is to connect that past with my present life, with, you know, the current political um moment in nigeria so yeah that's that's the that's the key takeaway i hope yeah uh emmanuel in in yoruba we say a shagon <laughs> in, in Igbo is dalu yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> but in english it's simply thank you yeah yeah thank you so much that was emmanuel yuduma 
author of I Am Still With You, available now from HarperCollins Publishing and good bookstores near you. I've been Digwa Fallyun. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. We'd love to hear your feedback on what you think we should be talking about next, who we should have on, and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events, or peruse over 20 years of a back catalogue featuring the world's greatest minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. 